Well, please be seated and let's pray together now as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you again for our wonderful Lord Jesus and all that he has done, all his glorious perfection lived out in a life of perfect and utter righteousness. And then the perfect atoning death, carrying all of our sin and paying for it once and for all, uh, that we might be set free from all condemnation, uh, reconciled to you, and accepted, declared righteous in your sight. Father, as we come to these things tonight, give me grace as I speak on these things, and give us hearts, we pray, that receive and rejoice in our Lord Jesus. In his name, we ask it all. Amen. Well, if I could invite you, please, to take your Bibles and turn with me back to those verses in Luke chapter 23, which we read earlier on in our service. That would be great, thank you. Tonight we're in verses 13 to 25. And allow me to begin by just giving a, a brief recap to remind us all of where we're at in the narrative of Luke's Gospel. Jesus, having been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, has then been arrested by the Jewish authorities in the Garden of Gethsemane. That night, they then took him straight to the high priest's house, where he was questioned there that evening. Overnight, he was then held in prison. Uh, he was mocked and beaten by those supposedly guarding him. And the next morning, the Jewish council gathered very early and questioned Jesus again uh, for a second time before finding him uh, guilty of blasphemy in their sight. And their problem, however, is that they themselves, the Jewish council, don't have the authority to have Jesus executed. And that's what they really want to happen. And for the death sentence to be passed, they need Rome's help. And it's for that reason that they then send Jesus to Pilate. And they tell Pilate that Jesus is a dangerous revolutionary. Now Pilate, as he speaks to Jesus, sees straight through that. He declares there and then that Jesus is clearly innocent. And yet, at the same time, Pilate is intimidated by the Jewish council. And so in order to try and sidestep this predicament, he decides that he will send Jesus to Herod for Herod to deal with Jesus instead. Jesus is, of course, from up in Galilee, and much of the early ministry of Jesus had been carried out in Galilee. And so Pilate thinks, well, maybe he can get Herod to deal with this case instead. That plan of Pilate's just doesn't work because Herod just sends Jesus straight back to Pilate once again. That's where we're picking up the story this evening. Jesus has now been brought back to Pilate, and now Pilate has to figure out what to do with Jesus. And as we look at the next bit of the story this evening, 
I'd like us to notice three themes that Luke, that Luke draws our attention to in this passage. Uh, the first is this, marvel at the innocence of Jesus' life. Marvel at the innocence of Jesus' life. So Jesus has now been brought back to Pilate. And notice that Pilate calls together a crowd of Jewish people. He gathers together uh, the chief priests and the rulers, these members of the Jewish council who had originally brought Jesus to him. But as well as that, notice that now he also gathers together members of the, the general public, uh, the people, the crowds of Jerusalem. Remember that at this point, Jerusalem was teeming with people because the Jews had gathered together there for the Passover celebrations. And Pilate clearly wants the final bit of this trial, and in particular the giving of the verdict, the final verdict, to be very public. And so he gathers together the Jewish council and the Jewish public, all together uh, to hear it. I think the reason why Pilate does this is because he wrongly assumes that the crowd is going to be on Jesus' side. And Pilate is thinking to himself, it's going to be much harder for the Jewish council to pressurize him into finding Jesus guilty if, looking on and listening in, there are large large numbers of the general public present to witness these proceedings. You see, Pilate has had enough of the Jewish council trying to intimidate him. And so now the boot, as it were, is on the other foot. Now he wants the crowd to intimidate the Jewish council. He wants the Jewish council in the presence of the crowd to back down from demanding Jesus being executed. Now, as we know, very soon Pilate would find out just how wrong he was in thinking that. Because the crowd does not side with Jesus, it sides with the Jewish council. But I think that is probably the reason why Pilate gathers together this big crowd for this part of the proceedings. And then Pilate gives his verdict on Jesus once again. He, he says to these members of the Jewish council, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Very simply, Pilate knows that Jesus is entirely innocent. And in fact, if we put all of the different gospel accounts together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are, I think, six different occasions when Jesus is declared to be innocent at his trial, either by Pilate or by Herod. I think it's Pilate declares Jesus innocent five times, and Herod declares Jesus innocent once. And so here's the first thing we should notice as we look into these verses this evening. Time and again, the innocence of Jesus is confirmed for us, even by his enemies, even by Pilate, even by Herod. We should marvel at the innocence of, innocence of Jesus' life. 
And we should note that in this regard, he is so different to us, isn't he? We know that we sin every day. We sin in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is innocent. And the psalmist in Psalm 130 asks the question, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The right answer to that question is, of course, only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only he has lived a life of perfect obedience so that he can be declared innocent in every way. He obeyed every commandment of God's law. Not a single bad word in all his life. Never a single bad thought crossing through his mind. Never a bad thing acted out by him. He never once allowed temptation to get the better of him. Never dropped his guard even for a moment and allowed sin to get a foothold. He was completely innocent before both God and man. And for him to be our saviour, it was necessary that he would be entirely innocent of all sin. Just one sin, one sin would have been enough to shatter his credentials as our saviour. That's all it would have taken. And yet for our sake he lived a life of sinless innocence. In his commentary on Luke's Gospel, J.C. Ryle says, There was a peculiar fitness in this public declaration of Christ's innocence. Our Lord, we must remember, was about to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. It was proper and right that those who examined him should formally pronounce him to be an innocent and blameless person. The overruling hand of God so ordered the events of his trial that even when his enemies were judges, they could find no fault with him, nor prove any charge against him. We ought to be daily thankful that our great substitute was in all respects perfect and that our surety was a complete and faultless surety. And you see, the wonder of the gospel is that this perfect innocence of Jesus has been counted to everyone who trusts in Jesus as if they had lived that life of perfect obedience themselves. I wonder if you're a Christian, do you struggle with feelings of guilt in your Christian life? Do you struggle with a lack of assurance because you feel like you, you just haven't measured up? And so you spend your whole Christian life looking at your own imperfect walk and you sometimes think to yourself, well, how can I even be a Christian? How can God really accept me when I just keep messing up time and time again? And the answer to that is to look away from yourself and to look to Jesus in faith. Robert Murray McShane put it very well when he said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ and marvel at the innocence of Christ's life, his sinless perfection in his entire life. And know that he did it for you on your behalf, as it were walking in your shoes because... You've fallen short. 
and know that through faith that perfect innocence, that righteousness of Jesus is counted as yours. And so God sees you in Christ as if you yourself had obeyed the law of God perfectly and had never sinned, not even once. When you look to Jesus and see his perfect innocence, his righteousness, and know that that is counted as yours, that will bolster your assurance like nothing else will. And so in these verses, marvel at the innocence of Christ's life. And remember that if you're trusting in him, it is counted as yours. And then here's the second thing we should take notice of in these verses. Be appalled at the injustice of Jesus' trial. Be appalled at the injustice of Jesus' trial. Now there are two main ways that we see injustice at work in these verses. On the one hand we see it in the hostility of the Jews and then on the other hand we see it in the cowardice of Pilate. And so we'll take those one by one this evening. Firstly the hostility of the Jews, the injustice there. And that hostility of the Jews against Jesus appears, first of all, in this passage, in their response to Pilate, giving that verdict that Jesus is innocent. And when they hear this, the Jewish crowd, that is the chief priests and the rulers, and as we've seen, the general public as well, they all cry out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. And notice that as Luke describes it to us, the hostility of the Jews escalates as this story continues. If you look carefully at Luke's account, you see that the hostility of the Jews escalates throughout this passage, and it does so in three different ways. So firstly, their hostility became more persistent. Notice that in the way that Luke writes it. In verse 18, he says simply that they cry out together. And then in verse 21, he changes the way that he describes it, doesn't he? He says, they kept shouting. And the implication is that the shouting became continuous. They became more and more persistent in this hostility. It was continuous shouting, continuous hostility against Jesus. And also their hostility became more explicit as time went on. So again, look at verse 18. They simply say, away with this man. And then in verse 21, and then again in verse 23, they say exactly what it is they mean by that. Crucify him, they cry. Their cries have become more explicit. They demand not just that Jesus face punishment, but they make it explicit that they want the worst possible punishment for Jesus. And also their hostility became more intense as time went on as well. Look at how Luke describes it by the time we get to verse 23. It says they were urgent, demanding, with loud cries that he should be crucified. You see they're frenzied now, baying for blood. And it is a, a chilling description of how their hostility against Jesus escalated rapidly that day. Within it appears the space of just a few minutes. Their hostility against Jesus became increasingly persistent and explicit and intense. They knew that Jesus was innocent. 
And yet they demanded his crucifixion nonetheless until they got their way. Picture, isn't it, of, as it were, sin with the brakes off. Sin getting a foothold in someone's heart and escalating dramatically. And then we also see the injustice of Christ's trial in the cowardice of Pilate. Now we made note of this cowardice of Pilate in our previous sermon. And again, the cowardice of Pilate is evident in these verses as well. In total, if we look at the whole account, Pilate in his cowardice tried to sidestep the issue of what to do with Jesus in four different ways. So first of all, he he tried to get the Jews to deal with the matter themselves. He didn't want anything to do with this case, just get the Jews to deal with this themselves. Now that wasn't going to be accepted by the Jews because they were insistent that Jesus ought to be put to death. And as we've seen already, they couldn't do that themselves. They insisted that it was Pilate's job to try Jesus. Because only then could there be a death sentence imposed. And so next, Pilate tried to get Herod to deal with the matter instead. But again, that didn't work. Jesus wouldn't answer any of Herod's questions. And so Herod just mocked Jesus, sent him back to Pilate. And so as we've seen already, Pilate's first two attempts to dodge the issue have both failed. And Jesus is back before Pilate again. And in tonight's passage, we see that there are two further ways that Pilate tries to sidestep the issue. And firstly, he does so by suggesting that he just punish Jesus more lightly than the Jews were demanding. He knew that Jesus was innocent, but he figures if he just has Jesus punished with a beating rather than by putting him to death, would that satisfy the Jews? And that way he could avoid having to impose the death death sentence on an innocent man. And yet at the same time, he could avoid criticism from the Jews. So that's his third attempt to sidestep what to do with Jesus. Uh, Twice he makes that suggestion in verses 16 and 22. I will therefore punish and release him. But again, the, the Jews are hearing none of it. If they just wanted Jesus punished with a beating, well, they could have done that themselves under their own laws. The only reason they brought him to Pilate is because they want Jesus executed. So Pilate's third attempt has failed, but then a fourth possibility occurs to him. Uh, There was this tradition in those days that around the time of the Passover feast, the Romans would release one prisoner whoever the Jews wanted. Uh, They would give this particular prisoner a pardon and this person would go free. And I guess it it was a gesture intended by the the Romans to placate the Jews. And so this idea comes to to Pilate. It's Passover season, of course, and he has not yet released a prisoner for the crowds. And this seems like a golden opportunity for Pilate. And he decides that he will give the Jews two options about who he should release that year. He will offer either to release the worst criminal 
that he can find. Or he will release Jesus. And undoubtedly Pilate thinks to himself, well this is going to be an absolute no-brainer for the crowds. The crowds will choose Jesus to be released. It's obvious, isn't it? The other man, the other option is Barabbas, who was a murderer. He'd led an insurrection. And surely the Jews would rather have Jesus back on the streets than having a murderer back on the streets. Surely this fourth attempt at trying to dodge the issue of having to deal with Jesus is going to work. And yet to Pilate's amazement, the Jews answer saying they want Barabbas released. And they want Jesus crucified. And they say, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. So what's Pilate going to do? He's been a coward four times already, repeatedly trying to dodge the issue. And on each and every occasion, it's backfired on him. And so what is he going to do now? He's got no other options left. He can't dodge this issue anymore. He has to make a decision now. Will he do the right thing? Will he release the man who he knows is innocent? Or will he set a murderer free and sentence an innocent man to death by crucifixion? Luke tells us, and the voices of the Jews prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And you see, yet again, he he takes the cowardly option. It is, as someone has put it, the most shocking travesty of justice that history has ever recorded. Be appalled at the injustice of Christ's trial. The injustice seen both in the hostility of the Jews and in the cowardice of Pilate. And then before we close, there's something else here as well, isn't there? That even in the midst of this great injustice, we also see the hand of God at work in his grace. His perfect purposes being worked out. Even using the sinful actions of the Jews And of Pilate. As someone has put it, God handles sin sinlessly. And that's never been more true than in the crucifixion of Jesus. That even here, God is at work through these events. And he's at work in order to show amazing saving grace. And this story of Jesus and Barabbas gives us a picture of that, doesn't it? So here's the third and the final thing to see in these verses. Be thankful for the grace of Christ's death. Be thankful for the grace of Christ's death. And the grace of Christ's death is pictured for us vividly in this remarkable exchange that takes place between Jesus and Barabbas. Now interestingly, the name Barabbas literally means son of the father. Uh, Jesus, of course, owns that title in the most superlative sense. Barabbas, as we've seen, is a guilty criminal. He's condemned uh, for being an insurrectionist. Jesus, as we've seen, is completely innocent before both God and man. Uh, 
And yet the innocent Jesus is condemned, whilst the guilty Barabbas goes free. The same crime of which Barabbas was guilty and for which he had been condemned was then counted to Jesus, though he had done nothing to deserve it. And he underwent its punishment instead. And though I doubt that Barabbas fully understood any of this, I'm sure that that evening, after all was said and done, Barabbas would have looked back on that day and he would have said to himself, well, I'm sure glad that Jesus went to the cross instead of me. That was the punishment that, that I deserve and for which I was heading, but only thanks to the death of Jesus, I was saved from it. And you see, this is all, of course, a, a vivid picture of the grace of the gospel of Christ crucified. Again, J.C. Ryle comments as follows. He says, there is a deeper meaning yet beneath the circumstance before us, which we must not fail to observe. The whole transaction is a lively emblem of that wondrous exchange that takes place between Christ and the sinner when a sinner is justified in the sight of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, the innocent, has been reckoned guilty before God, that we, the guilty, might be reckoned innocent and be set free from condemnation. And you see, by nature, we're all like Barabbas, that is, we are guilty before God, bound to rights, deserving the full consequences of our sin, which is eternal death under God's punishment. And yet, if you're a Christian, you know that this remarkable exchange has taken place. That the punishment that you deserve and for which you were heading was poured out on Jesus instead in your place. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And because the innocent Jesus was counted guilty, that is all of our sin imputed to him. Guilty people like us can be counted innocent, declared right in God's eyes, and set free from all condemnation. Give thanks of Christ's death. It was the punishment that we deserve and for which we were heading, but only thanks to the death of Jesus, we were saved from it. The hymn that we'll sing at the end of our service sums it up beautifully, doesn't it? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. And if you're someone who is not yet a Christian, how do you come to benefit from the grace of Christ's death? And you do so simply through faith in him, 
That is by recognizing that on your own two feet, you are as lost as Barabbas was, guilty, facing condemnation, without a hope of exonerating yourself before God's justice. And so you look away from yourself. You look to Jesus. You look to his innocent life. You look to his sin-bearing death. And then his glorious resurrection. And you pin all of your hope only on him. On him alone. You put your faith in him. And what he has done to set you free from all condemnation. And as we close, let me ask you, where is your faith this evening? Where have you placed your trust? Is it in Christ crucified? Marvel at the innocence of his life. Be appalled at the injustice of his trial. And most of all, give thanks for the grace of his death. That he took the place of guilty sinners like us. He suffered the punishment we deserve in order to set us free and bring us to God. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we can scarcely begin to give you the praise and adoration that you deserve for the grace that is shown to us in Jesus, who came into this world as our representative, our substitute, lived the life that we failed to live, but ought to have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and rose again. We marvel at his innocence, his life of perfect, perpetual obedience to all of your law. Not even his worst enemies could make any charge stick against him. And it amazes us that if we're trusting in him, that perfect innocence, that righteousness has been counted to us as if we had never even sinned ourselves. And we're again appalled as we consider the great injustice in Christ's trial and the evil of the human heart in rejecting Jesus. But we praise you when we thank you for the grace of Christ's death, stepping into our place so that our sin was counted as his, and he died for it all, undergoing the judgment of God at the cross, so that guilty people like us can be forgiven, can be set free from all condemnation. We thank you for the cross, Father. Thank you for Jesus. And for any here tonight who are still clinging on to the notion that they can get by trusting in their own good works, help them to see how futile that is. And instead look to Jesus and place all of their trust in him. In our Saviour's precious name, we ask all of these things. Amen.